Hi, this is Cynthia Mosser. This is Art Chat Northwest, a podcast about artists living in the Pacific Northwest. I'm here with artist Amy Runiger, a three-dimensional artist and multimedia artist, and I am here to speak with her about her work. So welcome, Amy. Thank you, Cynthia. So Amy, I'd like to talk about a couple of shows that you're having, actually three shows, and I will talk about them in detail at the end. The first one is at the World Forestry Center. It's the Sitka Invitational, um, November 4th and 5th, 2017. And then the Guardino Gallery, you'll have a show in 2018. And then the AI, the Art Institute of Portland Pocket Gallery in May of 2018. So Amy, can you tell me a little bit about your background, your education, and where you're from? I came from Oshkosh, Wisconsin, grew up there, and then I went to college in Madison, Wisconsin, and got my bachelor's degree in fine art there, then headed to Mexico, working for some jewelers, and then to Texas, and I started teaching art, and now I'm here in Portland for the last 18 years. And Amy, you have your MFA from Portland State University? Yes, I do. So let's talk about your life as an artist and your becoming what is known as a multimedia artist. Can you tell me what that is? What is a multimedia artist? Well, for me, it is an artist that works with many different materials and puts them together. Such as? I work with copper primarily and um, some horsehair and wood a little and gold and gold leaf and a little rubber. Now, were you always a three-dimensional artist? No. And when did you start becoming that, or when did you start getting into sculpture and metal? Well, actually, in high school, I was way more three-dimensional. I was casting metals. I had an art teacher in high school who was a jeweler, so a lot of experimented with a lot of metals, so casting in gold and silver and pewter, centrifugal casting versus poured gravity pours. So I got a lot of experience with metal and molten metal and melting metal. I also did a lot of ceramics in high school and as a kid. So I did two-dimensional work in high school also, which I love printmaking and painting and drawing for sure. So when I got to college, I knew I couldn't afford the metals that I liked, like gold and silver. So I did sculpture, bigger sculpture with uh, more affordable prices. And I also did drawing and printmaking. I love the 2D world. Yes, you're a great printmaker too. Thank you. So can you tell me about your living in Mexico? Well, you had a sabbatical in Mexico and you've also lived in Mexico. Can you tell me about what is it about Mexico that you like? How did it influence you? My first job when I was 15 was at a Mexican restaurant in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. And two sisters owned it and I love them to death. So I started learning Spanish pretty early on. And my mother had a fascination with Mexico because of the migrant workers coming up to rural Wisconsin and helping all the farmers. So I went to Mexico when I was in second grade. My mom took us off um, on a family vacation. And it totally influenced me because it was such a different world, right? It's an amazing country, super diverse, huge. The crafts and the art and the color are abundant. Their creative problem-solving skills are amazing. Everyday people buy art, which I love. It's not a real classist thing. People all appreciate and make art and buy art. After I got out of art school from Madison, I met up with some jewelers, wonderful jewelers, and they hired me, and they were doing the arts and crafts festivals 
and then doing living in Mexico in the winters. So that was a great life. And I got to do drawing and painting with some uh, Mexican teachers, which really helped me. I was working jewelry for a Canadian jeweler and kept working for a diverse group of jewelers throughout those years. And how long were you in Mexico doing jewelry? How old were you? Um, 22 to mm-hmm. about three years. It wasn't straight through. It was a nine-month chapter, then a six-month chapter, six-month, and, and where then in three Mexico? Months. San Miguel de Allende in the state of Guanajuato. So you teach full-time at the Art Institute of Portland, and you had a sabbatical in Mexico as well. Can you talk about that, where that was, what you did? Yes, it was great. Um, I spent a month in Mexico, and the goal was to go to a medals competition in Santa Clara del Cobre in the state of Michoacan. And this town, there was a missionary long ago who introduced different crafts per little village in the state of Michoacan up in the mountains. And Santa Clara is all copper raising. So they are doing the same technique I do, which is raising copper from a flat sheet. So you go from 2D to 3D. And once a year, they have this humongous competition. So all the metalsmiths and the families and the generations of them, they all compete for the prizes of different categories. So I went down there for this competition and it was fabulous. It's so inspiring. They do things that no other metalsmiths do in the whole world. So people come from all over the world. It's pretty spectacular. So Amy, what is it that you like about copper? Using it, working with it? How did that begin for you? Copper, my love of copper came from the raising process. Copper is very malleable and forgiving metal. Um, It's easier than silver to actually raise. So I love it for that. I love it that it's warm. It has a very warm hue. And basically because of its softness, you can easily manipulate it compared to other metals. Easily manipulate it. Now I'm sitting here in your (laughs) studio and you told me how you work with the metal and it seems like quite a long process of pounding for lack Mm -hmm. of a better term. Can you tell me about that part, the physical experience? Okay. Everyone's like, oh, you hammer, how's your arm? Or are you really angry? must feel good to get your anger out. And it's way more than that. Yes, I am hammering, but it's definitely as mental. You have to be very much in the moment. It's a fabulous process for that because if you're not in the moment, you're going to hammer your finger. So you're right there. But it's also extremely auditory because how you hold the metal on the stake. So you have the copper on the steel hitting it with a steel or plastic hammer. So all the different sounds are telling you what's going on too. And it's physical, but it's also mental. It's also very auditory. Now what you work with now is a shape which has a vessel-like appearance. Tell me about this attachment to vessels or this idea of vessels. What is it about that? Well, the definition of a vessel is they are a container, primarily for water. And they're ancient. Some of the first things are to carry water. Vessels are to carry water. I see ourselves, though, as being a vessel. So we are a vessel. We are containers for what are 60% uh, amount of water fluids in us. As an adult, um, 75% for kids, 50 for the elders. So we are vessels and containing our insides. 
I also love the fact that vessels have, and bowls, I do a lot of bowls, are the negative space or the empty space is as important, if not more important, than the outer shell. So I like that inside, outside, and empty and full. You've also talked about using three legs or prongs. Yes. What is the meaning of that? I find that interesting. Well, it's a triad, that's for sure, and there's a long history of powerful triads when you think of just in religions alone. But the first chairs were tri-legged. They're way more stable than four-legged. I took an industrial design class where we made chairs, and that was kind of moving into the, oh my God, I have to make something that is functional. You sit on it, it has to actually not break, which was quite challenging. So doing research, there's tons of three-legged items out there that always have been. They're easier to balance than a four-legged. So again, it goes way back to ancient times. So I tend to like old themes and try to bring my new creativity to it. So Amy, when you start a bowl or vessel, what is your process? How, do you, how does this begin? First, you cut a circle out of copper. And then you sink it, which is stretching the metal, with a very roundy, roundy hammer into a stump, a wooden stump. So you're stretching it and getting a general bowl form. When you hammer copper, it gets harder. So you heat it up or anneal it in between every round. And anneal means? Annealing means you torch it until it's cherry red. It has to get cherry red, a particular color, so a color, and then you're always dealing with fire. You deal with a lot of fire in this process. Then you put it in a pickle that cleans the metal. And then pickle you, means? It's a chemical, a mix of chemicals that clean the metal. Then you rinse it off, dry it off, and then you start hammering it again. The annealing process aligns the molecules, so they're all nice and orderly, and then it becomes soft. The metal is soft. And then as you hammer it, all those molecules get scattered and discombobulated, and it becomes harder, more brittle, harder to move. So sometimes I keep the scale of the copper in such a dimension that usually I can finish the round, going around in circles, hammering as you raise it is the next step. And so there you're starting to go from a flat sheet even more to a three-dimensional form. And you do a multitude of hammer blows and rounds. So in between each round, which goes up from flat, one finger's width, bam. Then you have to kneel it. So you heat it up cherry red again, and you clean off the metal. Then you do another round, and it goes up one finger width. So it's this long process of multitude of hammer blows going in a circle. Then, once you're getting your general form, you start um, choosing wisely the stakes or the metal stakes that we're forming over because each end is a different shape. And so then you start getting real precise about the curves you want. So curves are very important. Then at the, once you get your final form, you planish it, which is finding a metal surface that fits perfectly in all the curves you made. And then you're hitting metal on metal and you are smoothing out the texture and smoothing out the metal so it's not thick in some areas and thin in the areas. So that's a very delicate process and you hear it. It's very auditory. So once you finish the form, then what do you do? Then you have to deal with the surface decoration, shall we say. Um, patinas, color it. You can get heat patinas, chemical patinas. I also put 23 karat gold leaf on it, which is another patina. Sometimes I keep it raw uh, copper. 
Sometimes you put a wax over it to kind of stop the patina from happening, the natural patina that happens from the air. Sometimes I leave the copper and just let it naturally turn into a darker, richer copper color. So dealing with the surface and how you're going to color it at the end is a big, big part of it. You spend weeks and months on a piece hammering, and then what am I going to do to the outside, to the surface? Right. So Amy, on your bowls and vessels, you inscribe imagery, which is really interesting. And I see imagery such as bones, chains. What does this imagery mean? I have a full repertoire of favorite imagery that tend to be metaphors for things in my life. So they just keep being repeated. That's my printmaking background. So that's another reason I love copper, because I used to etch on copper. I did not like to etch on zinc, and I didn't like the metal as much, just like aluminum is not a favorite metal of mine. So I have used um, a lot of my copper etching plates and cut them up and turned them into these vessels and bowls. So they have this history of them, and I asked people for their old copper plates. Donna Guardino actually gave me some of her old copper plates, so I can't wait to show her what I make out of them. So all those printmaking techniques I know how to do on copper. The catch here is it's three-dimensional. So doing aquatint, you don't have a flat plate to cook the resin particles. So uh, Michael Southern, who taught me a lot of printmaking when I got here, first got here, he taught me about three-dimensional aquatint, and you use Johnson's floor wax as the resist, like a dot matrix. And then you're still putting them in the chemicals, but three-dimensionally putting these objects in the chemicals to etch. So I have uh, a rocker for mesotint textures. I have rollers. I have diamond bit stylus. So I do that as well as use acids on some of the pieces. And what size of bowl feels most natural to you? That is very important to choose wisely because of my strength and my size as a human being. I can't go too, too thick because I can't handle it. I can't slam it around, the, move the metal as easily. Also, holding it um, becomes cumbersome if I get beyond like 12 inches. So I know I have my gauge that I prefer and the size, the maximum size. And then the little size, you can't go too small or else you're you know, hammering too close to your fingers. So the maximum size is 12 inches diameter? Yes. And then what's the most comfortable for you size-wise? Six, seven, eight inches in sure. there. So Amy, you uh, work full-time and you have your art life. How do you manage your time? How do you, how do you um, find time to do your art? I was reminded by a friend of mine that I have a calendar. And I have a list of every day what to do. And I put things on that calendar um, with lots of sticky notes too, and I do them. So um, I really am good at time management and budgeting my time. Also the importance of making dates for the artist self in the studio. And I used to have an ongoing Friday night as my studio night. So you say no to a lot of things and you put your studio and artist life in there with number one, number one priorities. So do you have a goal, a career goal for yourself? I have a goal to continue making art, to continue showing them, exhibiting them, and hopefully people want to take them away so I have more room to make more art. And that's as far as I can go with the goal. 
So Amy, I've come to the part of the interview where I have 10 rapid fire questions. Are you ready? Yes. What is your favorite color? Green or blue or both. Favorite shape? Organic and circles. Favorite sculptor? Louise Bourgeois. Favorite museum or art gallery? The Damon Hill in Houston, Texas. Your favorite way to maintain your energy? I exercise, I meditate, I have a vegetarian diet. Your favorite city or place? New York City. If you could meet one dead artist, who would you choose? Frida Kahlo is who I thought of first. What do you do every day that reminds you you're an artist? Make things and look at things. And finally, if you could live anywhere else in the world outside of Portland, where would it be? Barcelona, Spain. Amy, thank you so much. You have such great answers to all of these questions. And what I'd like to do now is talk about your upcoming shows, the details. So I'm going to start with the Sitka Invitational at the World Forestry Center. It's November 4th and 5th. That's a Saturday and Sunday. 10 to 5 are the hours and it's $5 for entry. There's also a party on Friday, November 3rd from 6 to 9 p.m. If you're a member, it's $45. And if you are a non-member, it's 65 and you get to meet the artists. In addition, you have a show coming up in April of 2018 at the Guardino Gallery. That is on Northeast Alberta Street in Portland, Oregon. And then in the Pearl District in Portland, Oregon in May of 2018, you'll have a show at what is known as the Pocket Gallery at the Art Institute of Portland. Thank you so much, Amy. It's been great talking with you. Thank you, Cynthia. It's been fun. This is Art Chat Northwest, and I'm Cynthia Mosser. Thanks for listening. <laughs>